Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Beth Burke and Chris Sands. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Canusa Street. I'm Beth Burke with the Canadian American Business Council, joined by my fantastic co-host, Professor Chris Sands of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hi, Chris. Hi, Beth. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you, Chris? I'm doing well, although, you know, every time I come on the street and I see you uh, standing there, you you always have compliments. So how could I be otherwise than great? I mean, I'm your biggest fan. I feel like (laughs) I've, you know, jumped into the the Scotty role of being the number one uh, fan club member. Uh, well, Scotty is an inspiration to us all, and uh, but you, you filled her shoes and then some. I'm super excited about today. We have a, quite an impressive guest joining us. Chris, I will turn it over to you to do the proper introduction. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited as well. Vincent Rigby is the Slater Professor of Practice, formerly the McConnell Visiting Professor uh, at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University. He recently retired from Canada's public service after 30 years in a variety of departments and agencies across government, including the Privy Council Office, Global Affairs Canada, Public Safety, the Department of National Defense, and the former Canadian International Development Association, CEDA. His career focused on security and intelligence, foreign policy, defense, and development issues, obviously, with those titles. And his last position, which is really interesting, is that he was the National Security and Intelligence Advisor to the Prime Minister from 2020 to 2021. And that means that he was advising current Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. He has... Um, Uh, a number of other roles. He's just sort of an amazing guy. Everybody wants to work with him. He is a senior fellow with the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University and a senior advisor with the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. And we're really, really glad to have you. Welcome, Vincent. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you to both of you for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. I know I'm getting excited to hear all the secrets. You've got all the all the goods, right? (laughs) Well, there is a Security of Information Act that I, I've, got, I've got to be cognizant of. I'm, I'm always afraid I'm going to get myself in trouble. I love to tell stories and I love to tell anecdotes, but I also want to stay out of jail if I possibly can. So I'll, I'll be open as I can, uh, but uh, but with that, with that one caveat. <laughs> well, we don't want you in jail, although we could probably do a podcast from jail. I'm glad you have that flexibility. I, I really am. It's really exciting to have you here, and there's so much going on globally, and would just love, you know, from your perspective and your background, just a little sense on what you think the the hottest button issue is right now. Oh, boy, that's that's a great question. Where do I start, Um, and which hot button issue should I I focus on? I think from a Canadian perspective right now, and, and, and Chris has heard me pontificate on this a number of times, so... Uh, I, I will I will not uh, in any way, shape, or form be um, annoyed, Chris, if you start to yawn and go, I've heard it, I've heard it before. But I just think there's so much out there. I won't focus on one hot button issue in the sense of a crisis or or a, a specific situation. But I think for me, from a Canadian perspective, it's Canada and the world writ large, and where does Canada stand? in terms of international security issues on national security, on national defense, and a world that continues to get increasingly dangerous and unpredictable. It's a world full of turmoil. Um, You guys know this. Your audience knows this. We don't have to go into the details of what's happening out there right now. But how 
is Canada going to respond? And is Canada going to step up to the plate? And I think for a number of commentators, I think for a number of allies of Canada, of other countries around the world, there have been some question marks over the last year or two about Canada's position on some of these issues. Is Canada going to play a role that is commensurate with its history? Because Canada, I think, has been there in the past when it comes to troubled times. So are we going to step up diplomatically from a security perspective with our defense forces? Are we are we going to be able to help the United States, help our allies in responding to many of these big global crises that are that are, that are out there, and crises that are manifesting themselves internationally, but inevitably blow back domestically. And all the stuff you're seeing in Canada right now, in terms of uh, hostile state activities, Chinese foreign interference and so on, have an international origin. So. So where is Canada on the world stage? Wither Canada on the world stage would be my big, my big number one hot button issue at the moment. And, and Vincent, do you think that's a question of capability or will? And I, I say that because I think a lot of Canadians are proud of their global role, but we've seen some of the writing, you know, in the media lately about, you know, the state of Canada's foreign service. And of course, the Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee came out in Canada with a report on the state of the foreign service. We've we've seen reductions in development assistance, and obviously, the question that Americans are always thinking about. Canada's defense spending, which um, isn't quite at the two percent target that uh, of the Wales commitment in NATO. So, where do you see it? Is it really that Canada has a voice? It just doesn't have the means to project it, or is it a question of Canada lacks the the will to engage in an increasingly dangerous world and would like to sort of stick to its knitting and maybe be almost a little bit isolationist uh, at times? I think it's a combination of both. I think that there is a lack of capability, but to a considerable extent, that lack of capability is because of a lack of will. Um, and I don't want to point the finger too much at the current government, because this is a perennial problem for, for, for Canada. So on the one hand, I was saying that Canada is a pretty proud global tradition. I think they I think they do. We've been there when the chips are down. You look at our proud military tradition in terms of of uh, stepping up when there are major conflicts. You know, I think you and I are having a conversation about this just the other day, Chris, going back to the Boer War, the First World War, the Second World War, the Korean War, um, the Balkans in the 1990s, Afghanistan. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. We're always there. But I find often that we wait until the crisis is there and then, and then we have to um, really throw things together at the last minute and and engage I think that Canada has struggled for a long time, not just governments, but but Canadians writ large. And then I think this reflects on governments. Um, they've had a problem coming to terms with global threats. And some of the polls that have been appearing recently have been quite interesting. You you ask Canadians, is the world a more dangerous place? And they'll go, yes, absolutely. I mean, look at all the things that are happening out there from Gaza to Ukraine to a rising China. And then the next question they'll ask is, do you feel threatened? No. Not particularly. <laughs> that stuff's all happening over over there. And so um, there's this wonderful phrase that has been coming up a lot lately in the Canadian media, and I've used it a, a couple of times in articles. And uh, Chris, you'll know that uh, Norman Hilmer, a mutual good friend of us, has told me to stop using it because it's become such a cliche. I think you know what I'm going to say, but it's the fireproof house. All right. Senator Raul Duran back in the 1920s said that Canada lives in a far-proof house, far-proof house, far from flammable materials. There's still a little bit of that in Canada that, uh, yes, there's lots of bad stuff happening, but nothing's ever going to happen to us. Nothing ever has happened to us. And I've said on a number of occasions, 
um, that it's, it's unfortunate that, that uh, well, it's very fortunate that we've never had a Pearl Harbor or a 9-11. Um, but sometimes I wonder if that's what it's going to take. And God forbid, God forbid that we have an event like that, but that's what it's going to take to wake up a, a Canadian. So, um, and, and for those who, I think, look out at the world and go, there are threats out there. There are serious threats and, and who do get it. I think, unfortunately, and this is where the Canada-U.S. dimension comes in, there's still a certain complacency that we live next door to the United States, and the U.S. is going to take care of us. And we've always had the United States as a bit of an umbrella. Fortress North America, and uh, so the threat's not that serious, but if it does get serious, um, we share a continent. The Americans aren't going to have a choice but to take care of us, so why should we Why should we worry? So, so this, to bring back Bring it back to your question, Chris. Will or capability? There's, there's a, there's a lack of will, I think, to to take the threat seriously and to and to act. And then because of that, I think our capability, our capabilities have um, started to decline or atrophy a little bit. So whether it's the diplomatic tools you mentioned, the Senate report, whether it's the Canadian Armed Forces, uh, I mean, we're quite well below the two percent target. We're down around 1.3, 1.1.2. Our developmental assistance, some of the stuff we do at home in, in terms of defending Canadians and Canadian interests against foreign interference and so on, um, we we lack a bit of both right now, intent, intention and capability. And that, unfortunately, has put us in the place that we that we are, where I think our reputation is really starting to suffer internationally, including in Washington, which is where I think we should be most concerned when that when that reputation is thrown into question. I have to jump in. Uh, I think it's almost a contractual obligation since I work at the Woodrow Wilson Center to acknowledge that Senator Raoul Dandron of Canada served as president of the League of Nations, which was a Woodrow Wilson uh, you know, venture that the United States nonetheless never joined. And it brings me to... CPTPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, rechristened the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership. And that was another great U.S. idea that, uh, that Canada joined and the U.S. never did. When you think about Canada's role in the Indo-Pacific, I know that's a crazy pivot there, but, uh, you know, we hear a lot about Canada, you know, as Inspiring to be in these things, but we're not hearing a lot from Washington about with invitations. Canada should be part of AUKUS. Canada should be part of the IPEF, the Quad. You name the arrangement, and, and yet Canada is in CPTPP, is pursuing an arrangement with ASEAN. Where do you see Canada in what some people think is is the most important global theater, both economically and geopolitically, uh, the Indo-Pacific? So it's the one part of the world where I think Canada has done and this. This current government has done a little bit of strategic thinking. So I've been quite, quite critical over the last couple of years about how we have to think more strategically about our foreign policy and our foreign policy priorities. Where do we want to play? I often say that Canada is a middle power with great power aspirations, global aspirations, because we, we've got interests all over the world. And we do. We do have interests all over the world, economic interests, security interests, but we have limited capabilities going back to that question of capability. So where do you want to focus? And, and what do you want to do and how are you going to balance all those competing priorities? So Canada's done well in terms of finally, after uh, many, many, many delays coming out of an Indo-Pacific strategy around about this time last year, and I think setting out um, some, some decent objectives and some goals and some ambitions as to how we will be a player 
in the Indo-Pacific region. So um, about a year in, I think they've had some modest success in terms of implementing the strategy. It's got five broad objectives, security and and uh and defense are uh, is one of those is one of those pillars. It uh, it had some I would say relatively modest funding to support the strategy about 2.3 billion over over five years. So um, we have a critical path, if you want to call it that, a plan to engage more in the Indo-Pacific, because that's often been the criticism in the past that we sort of pop in and out of the region. So let's see if we can sustain this now. Um, so as I say, there's 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 been some good steps. We've established some some positions. We've we've got uh, an Indo-Pacific trade representative right now in Manila. We've done we've started up some some serious dialogues with ASEAN and other other countries. We've opened up some other offices. We've deployed a, a third frigate to the region to to help in countering um, the China threat, although not explicitly putting it that way. Um, for me, though, that you you do have you do have some issues. With the, with the strategy over the longer term. And I, I wrote this piece, Chris, as you know, on the policy options recently uh, with, a, with a former student of mine, uh, AFTAB, um, where, we, where we say that while the, the, the progress has been, has been solid and it, it, it has been encouraging, there's still a number of elephants in the room, not just one 800-pound gorilla or one big elephant, choose your animal, but a number of them, and uh, they could, over time, undermine the strategy. The, the first is India, and we're in a bit of trouble with India right now. Uh, again, I don't think I have to tell uh, your audience what, what those problems are because they very much involve the United States as well in terms of assassinations or attempted assassinations of, of uh, um, Sikh extremists, alleged Sikh extremists on, on Canadian and American and American territory. Our relationship is in a bad place right now with India, but India is the linchpin of the strategy. And if we can't get along with India, uh, I think we're going to ha- have a hard time of, of making that strategy work. The other big piece is 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 China, and and uh, you know I've been pushing, and I was pushing when I was NSIA, I have a harder line on on China. Um, well, we've gone from one extreme to the other. We have a pretty hard line with China to the extent that the relationship is is really. Um, problematic at the moment in terms of trying to get stuff done in a positive in a positive way. The bilateral relationship is extremely fraught, very fraught. So how do we move that forward in in in, in the region? Um, the third problem is the is the issue you specifically mentioned. We we are being left out of um, a lot of bodies right now of organizations in the Indo-Pacific uh, region, and that. I think speaks to what I was saying earlier in terms of our reputation right now, what capabilities we bring to the table. But um, it's hard to get things done when you're not at those tables. So whether it is IPATH or the Quad or AUKUS, um, you know, have we asked to get into these organizations? I think in some cases we have and others maybe, maybe not. With the door slammed in our faces, nobody knows for sure. I think even in government, you get different answers from different people depending on where they're sitting at any, any point in time. But uh, I think if we really want to make a play in that region, we have to be a member of some of these organizations. And then finally, the big one for me is on the security side. And again, Chris, you've heard me talk about this a great deal, but I, I just feel that it's difficult to be a player in that region by uh, adding one frigate to a current deployment of two frigates. So do we have two frigates in the region when we don't have other hard capabilities that we can deploy to support the United States and our allies. We 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 aren't going to get our F-35s fully online until into the 2030s. We don't have submarine capability. We're finally going to 
replace our maritime patrol aircraft, but that's going to take a while. Um, we've got the chief of the defense staff and the head of the Navy saying that it's going to be difficult to sustain ourselves militarily in this region, not 10, 15 years out, but in the next 12 months, like literally in the next 12 months, it's going to be tough. So, um, so to answer your question, um, are we back in the Indo-Pacific region? Well, I would say that we've dipped our big toe in the region, uh, but how much further we can, we can jump into the region is going to depend on what, what we put out there in terms of money out the door, but in terms of hard capabilities on, on the military side. And if we can't play on the hard military side, then we at least need to play on the soft, the soft security side. Some of the other things that we can do from a public safety perspective, fisheries patrols and, and um, disaster response, we can still help out in that area. So lots of potential there. there we've laid a foundation, but I, I do worry about where we're going to be in that region over the, over the longer term. I'd love to talk about another region because obviously there's not a lack of uh, areas to get involved with, but you spent a lot of time in Arctic um, policy. And I think, you know, the energy and attention has sort of shifted from the margins of strategic thinking from the U.S. really to the forefront. And we're trying to, you know, the U.S. is trying to quickly adapt to this reality. What do you think the opportunities exist for a U.S.-Canada allyship in approaching Arctic security? Well, it's a great question. And um, the Wilson Center and Max Bell held a great conference um, in Montreal back, back in June. Um, and we talked about Canada-U.S. cooperation in the Arctic, and we looked at a lot of the the aspects of the Arctic, both from a threat perspective and what's up there right now and what we have to worry about, but how can Canada and the U.S. cooperate in terms of responding to some of those threats, the threats both through the Arctic and, and inside the Arctic. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's interesting having just spoken about the Indo-Pacific region and, and, and China. I think that China as as a as a potential emerging threat in that region, much much more active in in the Arctic, declared itself a near Arctic state, um, and is now an observer in the Arctic Council. Clearly, they want to play a larger role. We could, if we're not going to play in the Indo-Pacific region specifically, we could play more in in the Arctic, and we could do we could do a lot more. So. Um, in terms of what we can do, I, I think first and foremost, uh, let's get NORAD modernization, um, really moving on steroids. Uh, I think the U.S. has been pushing Canada for a while to, to up its game. We, we need to um, modernize the North warning system to, to, to counter modern threats. I think Canada's made an announcement in the last year or so that they're moving in that direction. They've announced funding, but... Um, we can't just make announcements. We got to we got to make it happen. So so move in that direction. I think um, Canada can do more in terms of following through on on announcements they made in the past. We've got we've got projects in the Arctic dating back to the early years of the Harper government um, deploying Arctic offshore patrol ships. Uh, you know we were supposed to deploy six. We've only deployed four. I think that was that, that last count three or three or four. That project was announced in two thousand and seven. We announced a, a refueling station on Baffin Island in Nana Civic in 2008, 2009. It's still not fully operational. So get moving on these things. Get 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 them get them up and running, and and not just from a military perspective. We talked a lot about this at the conference in June. Uh, socioeconomic development, human security that complements harder uh, security, defense security, countering threats from Russia or or China, building up our infrastructure. 
looking at ways that we can cooperate, Canada and the U.S. and the, and the Arctic in terms of infrastructure in, in, in Alaska and Northwest Territories and the High Arctic, um, and making making human security kind of uh, um, very much at, at the heart of our combined our combined strategy. And, and um, so there's lots and lots to do in the Arctic. I think this is an area where Canada helps itself and its own national interests. It's a huge chunk of Canadian territory, 40% of our territories in the Arctic. Um, so we should be taking better care of it. We're great on the rhetoric. We love talking romantically about, about the Arctic in Canada, but we don't necessarily do much. So let's do it in our own national interest. But boy, I think the U.S. would be ecstatic if we didn't necessarily deploy 30 frigates and eight submarines to the Indo-Pacific, which is never going to happen. But if they, if, if they help, uh, if we help them, uh, take care of the Arctic. And, and, uh, you know, often referred to it sort of as our, as our, as our back door. If we could do that, I, I think it would be, it would be great for the, the relationship. It would be great for NATO because NATO's paying more attention to it. So take a, take a, a um, a, you know, I, I said there's so many problems out there right now, so many pressures on Canada to do something. Um, take a digestible piece and, and get your teeth into it. And for me, that digestible piece is the Arctic. That's where we should be, be focusing on. Uh, and that's where um, we can play up our capabilities and, and play, and we can play a leadership role in the Arctic uh, with, with some of our fellow NATO members, including the United States and the, and the Nordic members. So I, I think it's a great question and I, I hope we can, we can up our game a little bit in that area. Vincent, that was fantastic. And and always talking to you, I feel like I get a global picture. And the way that you link some of these threads together is is tremendous. Um, we should have you back for yet another episode because we've only talked to think about the Arctic Indo Pacific. Is that half the world? <laughs> we have another half to go. The world is not enough. I think that's uh, that's a given. But uh, but we are at our time. And I but I wanted to I wanted to thank you for coming on. I th wanted to thank you for sharing with us the kind of wisdom that Justin Trudeau taps when he when he can. Uh, sharing it with those of us on Canusa Street. I don't know if the prime minister is still talking to me. I give some of the things that I've lost to you, but I but I hope so. And uh, listen, thank you to both of you for having me on the show. This is this is great. And I would jump with the opportunity to come back. So uh, anytime. Well, we're going to take you up on that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Till next time. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 